All right, all right. Well, it's good to see you guys. And it also looks like this might be a good chance for me to remind you that we actually have some other services here at our church. And so if you would like to have some space uh, next time you come, you can come on Saturday. Uh, there's uh, ample opportunity for you to come to that. That'd be great. But hey, uh, so glad that you're able to be with us as we are continuing in week three of a series that we've been doing uh, that is called You Are Here. And so like uh, Tommy said a minute ago, hey, if you're a guest, if it's your first time at Grace, we do just want to say thank you so much for being here. I want to extend a very special welcome to you. Welcome to the conversation. And uh, if you've missed the past few weeks or you are kind of newer to, uh, to Grace here, let me tell you what we're doing in this series and what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. So what we're doing in this sermon series is we're actually doing something that's a little advantageous. And we are in basically the course of about a 10-week period of time. We are trying to overview the entire Bible. Uh, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the whole way through. And the reason that we said that we're trying to do this is, uh, if you were here the past couple of weeks, is we said that we think this is so important because we said that probably all of us in this room, probably every single one of us, is somewhat familiar with Bible stories, right? My guess is uh, whether or not you grew up in the church or not, whether you are a Christ follower or not, my guess is that all of us in this room are familiar that there are stories in the Bible, that there are Bible stories. And so maybe, for example, you are somewhat familiar with the story of David and Goliath. And so you know that that is a Bible story or the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And so we're all somewhat familiar with Bible stories. Some of us may be more uh, than others. But here's what we said, that while all of us are familiar with Bible stories, that maybe for a lot of us, we're not actually familiar with the Bible story the singular story of the Bible. In fact, here's what we said. We said that to understand the Bible as a series of a bunch of unrelated stories, kind of a compilation of a bunch of unrelated stories, we said a better way to think of the Bible is actually to think of it as one story, that the Bible is actually telling one united, one concentrated, condensed story from front to end, from Genesis to Revelation. It is a consistent story. There's one overarching narrative, there is one plot line, and there is one hero through the whole story. And here's what we said, that we said, quite honestly, for a lot of us, we might not know what that is. We might not be familiar with what the Bible story actually is. So in the course of the series, that's what we're doing. We're trying to give us a big picture overview of what the Bible is teaching, Genesis to Revelation. And in fact, uh, we've been looking every week at this roadmap, and we said, you know, if you could really kind of summarize it, we said you can look at the big picture of the Bible kind of condensed in these 10 different mile markers. So you can sort of think of this as a roadmap. And we said, here's the story of the Bible in a nutshell. We said the story of the Bible is that God creates, we rebel. God promises, we wander. God builds, we destroy. The Father sends, the Son rescues, the Spirit indwells, and God reigns. And we said this is actually a very helpful way to actually kind of understand the whole Bible, kind of these 10 things. And so what we're doing in this series is we're working our way through all 10 of these together. And our hope, kind of our goal is this. Our goal is that by the end of this series is that all of us would know this. Our hope is that we would know it. We would know how to articulate and explain and that we could rattle off these things and basically have a good understanding and comprehension of the Bible story. But we said our goal is not just that we know it. We said our goal is also that we would live it, that we would invite everyone to live this story. And here's what we said. We said when we rightly orient ourselves to this story and when we're able to locate, ourse locate ourselves within it, we said that this actually has the power to impact the way that we view ourselves, the way we view others, and the way that we view the world that we live in. It can absolutely change your worldview. And so we said we want to know it, we want to live it, and then we said here it is too. We also want to give it away. And so our hope is that by the end of the series, especially for those of us who follow Jesus, that we would be equipped to take this story and be able to articulate it to other people in our lives, to pass it on to others. And so that's what we're hoping to do throughout this series. So last week, if you were here, we actually zoomed in and we talked about the first icon. We talked about the first mile marker. We spent the whole week talking about the origin story that God creates. And so I would actually encourage you, if you missed last week, by the way, you can always rewind, you can go back, you can check the podcast, the app, and the website. You can catch up on previous messages there. All of that is for free and all of that is for you. We'd encourage you to do that. But today... As we continue to work our way through this, we're going to talk about the second part, the second icon and mile marker. And today we're going to talk about this idea that we rebel. God creates and we rebel and we rebel. This is a huge part of our story. 
as we're going to see together. And so if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and grab it. If you would open up with me and join me in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, Genesis 3 is where we're going to be going today and going to be spending our time. So grab a Bible and get there. If you didn't bring a Bible, no problem. There's some Bibles under the chairs. And in those uh, black Bibles under the chairs, page 2 is where you're going to find Genesis chapter 3. So go ahead and get there. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, page 2. If you don't own a Bible, you can have one. All right, we'd love for you to take one home. So Genesis 3, page 2. As you're finding that and as you're getting uh, to Genesis 3, let me just kind of start by talking about why I think this is such a critical and crucial part to understanding God's story, to understanding the Bible, and to understanding our story. Okay, Genesis 3 is so significant, and here's why. So maybe you want to think about it this way. Did you ever have a time in your life when you walked into a circumstance or you walked into a situation and it was very clear in walking into that circumstance or situation that there was some kind of pre-existing conflict or there was some kind of pre-existing tension that you weren't aware of, but you could feel it when you walked into that room. So for example, have you ever had it happen where you're new into a neighborhood, you just moved in, or you're new at a job, or it's the first time you go to a party or something? And you walk in, and even though you don't know what happened before, you get the sense that there was some kind of pre-existing conflict or tension between two parties. Did you ever have that happen? You move into the neighborhood, and you know that neighbor doesn't like that neighbor, and I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's tension there. Or maybe this, maybe uh, you went to your boyfriend or your girlfriend's house for the first time over the holidays, and you met their family. Or maybe you did this when you first met the in-laws and you sat down at the table and you didn't know the backstory, but you knew there must have been a backstory because everybody knows that uncle so-and-so doesn't talk to uncle such-and-such and you can feel the tension in the room. And even though you're not sure what happened, you know that there's some pre-existing tension or conflict. And it's not until someone fills you in on the backstory that it makes sense, right? It's not until on the ride home that she says to you, well, the reason uncle so-and-so doesn't talk to uncle such-and-such is because they used to be business partners and there was a bad business deal and now for the past 10 years, they don't get along and their families don't talk to each other. And you guys know what I'm talking about? You ever been in that situation before? And some of you are about to go into that situation for Thanksgiving this year, right? Or someone's like, you know, you're like, why doesn't anyone seem to talk to Aunt Susie? And they're like, well, the reason no one talks to Aunt Susie is because she's a Steelers fan. And you're like, ooh, yeah, I shouldn't talk to her either. And you'd be right to do so, right? And uh, no, but what I'm saying is, I think all of us have felt that, right? We've all felt that before. You walk in and there's some pre-existing tension. Now, here's why I say that. In a lot of ways, this life is like that, isn't it? Because we're all, born, we're all born into this life. And it does not take very long for us to realize that something is the matter. There is some pre-existing tension and there is some pre-existing conflict that we were born into. And I think we all have some sense that something somewhere must have went wrong. I mean, think about it. How is it possible that we live in such a world that is so beautiful? This world is full of such beauty. There is so much that is awe-inspiring and praiseworthy about the world that we live in. And yet at the very same time, how is it possible that the world is so broken and it's so dark? And we can feel it, can't we? Every time we open up our news feed, every time we open up Facebook, every time we look into our own family and we look into our own hearts, we see the beauty of creation. At the very same time, we see the brokenness of creation. And the answer is, what happened? What happened? Here's why Genesis 3 is so important. Genesis 3 is telling us the backstory. Genesis 3 is telling us, listen, not just what went wrong, but it tells us what keeps going wrong, what continues to go wrong. I just wanna tell you, before we look at Genesis 3 today, I just wanna kind of forewarn you a little bit, especially if you're a person who's not familiar with the Bible, I just wanna forewarn you that there's a couple things that you're gonna notice in Genesis 3 today. Okay, number one, this passage, this passage is very powerful. It is very potent and it is very powerful. It is very revealing and it is very sobering. And my hope is that you feel that today. And the other thing I want you to know is, especially if you're newer to the Bible, Genesis 3 is probably gonna cause you to ask a bunch of questions that quite honestly, it's not even going to try to attempt to answer. And I just want you to know that. I just want you to know that because my hope is that as the questions that come up into your mind, that as you feel that, that those questions wouldn't keep you from feeling the weight 
of this passage. And so it's my prayer, it's my hope that today as we journey through Genesis 3, that together we can just feel the weight of what it's teaching us and what it's telling us, all right? So let's just jump in together, Genesis chapter three. I actually wanna start in the very last verse of Genesis chapter two, because this is where we left off last week. And here's what the Bible says. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, if you were here with us last week, we said this is such an important verse and maybe is one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 talks about how God created everything, about how God is ultimate, he's the ultimate reality, about how he's the creator and about how he's personal. Talked about that last week. We talked about how God created everything good and God created everything for a purpose. And we talked about how we were created to be in a right relationship with each other and God. And the creation account ends with this incredible statement. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And we said, this is absolutely beautiful because what it's telling us is that the man and the woman, that humanity was totally exposed, they were totally transparent and they were completely comfortable in their own skin. They were totally vulnerable with themselves, with each other and with God and there was no shame and there was only peace. And we said, this is what we were created for. This is what God created for. And as beautiful as a picture as it is, it's very short-lived because you flip the page to Genesis chapter three and here's what we see happens next. The Bible says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. All right, now let's just go ahead and pause there. Genesis chapter three, within the first three chapters of the Bible, we are going to be introduced to another very important part of the story. And this important part is this character the Bible brings up and calls the serpent. Now the serpent. Now, I know that to many of us, uh, the idea of there being a serpent in the garden might seem strange enough as it is, but what's gonna get even more crazy is we're gonna find in just a moment that apparently he can talk because he begins to have a conversation with this woman. Now, let me just tell you that immediately, as modern readers, a million questions come to our mind, right? Like immediately, like, who is this? Who is this serpent? Is that literal? Is it figurative? Where did he come from? What is his backstory? How did he get here? What's the matter with him? Right? We have all these questions that come right to our mind. And here's the thing. The Bible in pages to come throughout the rest of the story is actually going to have a whole lot to say about this character. He's actually going to play an integral part in the rest of the story from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to find out later that he's also called the devil. He's also called the Satan. He is also called the father of lies, the accuser, the deceiver. He's mentioned all the way from Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, it says this, that ancient serpent, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, all right? Now, here's, here's what I want you to notice without getting too into this, is that as much as we can say about the serpent and we can say about Satan right now, what I want you to notice is that Genesis 3 is not telling us anything, really, all that much about him. It's not telling us where he came from. It's not telling us the story of how he got there. And here's why it's not telling us any of that right now. It's not telling us that because Genesis chapter 3 is not fundamentally about him. Genesis chapter three is fundamentally about us and what went wrong with us. And so I don't want you to miss that. I don't want you to miss that. So what it does tell us about the serpent at this point though is a couple of things. I want you to notice, first off, it tells us that he was made. Okay, the Lord God made him. So in other words, here's what we know about the serpent. He was created. He's not like God. Satan is not God's equal and he is not God's opposite. That's not what the Bible says. He's created by God. And the other thing we know about him right from this is the Bible seems to want us to know that he was crafty. He's crafty. Now, when you think crafty, don't think Pinteresty. all right? It's not like he's like, oh, crafts, okay. Like, that's not it, all right? He's uh, cunning is the translation there. And the word cunning, uh, when it's used in this sense, like here in Genesis chapter three, it's used in a negative way. In other words, here's what it's telling us. He's tricky, He's, he's conniving, okay? He's, he's, this serpent is up to something. He's up to something. And what's interesting is that you can see by the way that he asks this next question, you can see how cunning he really is. Because look what happens. He goes to the woman and he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, I want you just to notice here, again, the cunningness and the craftiness of the serpent. 
Notice what he does here. When the serpent, when the tempter tries to tempt humanity, I want you to notice something so crucial. Temptation does not start with a bold-faced lie. That's not where it begins. It actually begins with a question. And the tempter begins with a question. And do you notice his question? He is questioning what God said. Did God really say? In other words, the, point, the beginning of temptation is that it begins with a question of God's word. It questions God's word. And let me tell you why that's so important. Up to this point in the story, if you were here last week, God's word has played a critical part in the creation of the universe. Every time God creates, he does so by speaking. And up to this point, every time that God speaks, everything listens, everything obeys him. And because everything obeys his word, there's peace and there's goodness. Now for the first time, this serpent comes along and he begins to question God's word. Did God really say? This is very cunning. In fact, I want you to even notice the way he words it. This is so tricky. Look at how he words it. Did God really say? Now, the reason I, I highlighted that, it's probably not immediately obvious if you're looking at an English translation. But if you look at this in the original Hebrew language, you would actually notice something right away. And it's this. So if you look back at Genesis 2, in fact, you can do this right now. If you look down at your Bible and you look at Genesis chapter 2, you will notice that every time it refers to God in Genesis chapter 2, as he is interacting with humans and as he's creating humankind, it always calls him the Lord God, the Lord God. Then the Lord God said, then the Lord God did, then the Lord God made, then the Lord God, then the Lord God, then the Lord God, all throughout Genesis chapter 2. Now, the Lord God is actually two words in Hebrew. It's the word Yahweh, Lord. God is Elohim. Yahweh is a personal title for God. God is a person that you can know. Elohim is a generic way of saying God. Now, here's what's so significant. Look how crafty this is. When the enemy comes in, he says, did God, did Elohim, he uses the generic impersonal term for God. In other words, he's depersonalizing God. He's depersonalizing him. And not only that, he says, did God, and look at this, did God really say, really? Some of you have translations that say, indeed, did God indeed say? And again, this is translated from a really important word. And the word in the Hebrew language is this word right here. It is the word, af, af. And I know you want to say it, so why don't you go ahead on the count of three. Let's give it a shot. Ready? One, two, three. Af, af. And you feel it, can't you? You feel what he's doing here. Uh, commentators point out that this word is onomatopoetic. In other words, it's just, it's just what, what the enemy's doing here is he's not denying what God said. What he's doing is he's criticizing it. Af. You can't say that. Pshaf. The modern day translation for us would be, Psh. Psh. Did God's, in fact, turn to the, do it. Turn to the person next to you, look them up and down, and you got to get the hands in there. Go, Psh. Psh. unreal, Psh. absolutely unreal. So what's he doing here? He is. Look at this. This is crazy. He's being so crafty. First of all, he's questioning God's word. He's depersonalizing God, and now he's criticizing his word. God said that? <laughs> okay. All right. And then notice, not only does he criticize God's word, he exaggerates God's word. You guys notice this? Did you notice the blatant exaggeration? Satan says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Any tree. Now, for those of you who were here last week, let me ask you, is that what God said? Did God say that? No, that's not what God said. That is a direct misquotation and exaggeration. What did God actually say? Well, if you look back just a chapter in chapter two, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You can eat from any of them. There's just one, just one, a million yeses and one no. There's just one prohibition that God gives to the man. And yet the enemy comes in here and he says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It's obvious what's going on here, isn't it? You can feel it. This is a spin job that was targeted right at the heart of humanity. By wildly exaggerating what God said, he's sowing seeds of suspicion. And the enemy is making God out to be restrictive and oppressive and suffocating. God is such a tyrant and he's holding you back. 
is basically the idea that's being communicated here. And let me just tell you, to this day, to this day, this is not just their story, this is our story. The beginning point of temptation begins in the same place. It begins with this same question. Really? Really? And, and I'm just saying, the beginning point of all temptation is a suspicion that what God said is silly or what God said is limiting. And I'm telling you, we continue to hear this voice, whether it comes from our culture or whether it comes from others or whether it's just a sneaking suspicion in our own heart and our own mind, we still hear this same voice. It's the beginning point of all temptation. You really believe God created everything. You believe that? All that stuff we talked about last week, God is ultimate reality. God is the creator. You mean to tell me you believe all that? Okay. In light of all of the advancement that we've seen scientifically and cosmologically, you're going to go with that. All right. All right. We hear it, don't we? We hear it. Did God really say marriage is like one man and one woman in a lifelong relationship of fidelity. God, God, God said that, huh? In this world today, how limiting, how restricting, how restraining that must be for God to do that. Oh, you, you, you really think God said, God really said you should forgive your enemy? God said that? God said that you should serve people even though they hurt you? Sounds to me like God wants you to be a doormat. I don't know. That's what it seems like to me. It's just, it's unreal. It's unreal. And I'm just telling you that this right here is the underworking of every cynical mindset that we have toward God's word and towards what God said. And Genesis 3 tells us it begins here. It begins here. So watch what happens next. Check this out. The woman said to the serpent, now, I don't want you to miss this. This is so easy to overlook, but I think it's very significant. I want you to notice what, what the woman does when the serpent comes and questions God's word. She engages with him. She engages with him. Now, I think this is really significant because I want you to notice what she doesn't do. She could have done this, but she doesn't do this. Notice she doesn't say, um, hey, uh, God, hey, God, the serpent's talking to me. And he's got a question about you. And so I thought that maybe you could help me answer him because he's got a question about you. In fact, even better yet, why don't you guys talk about it? Why don't you just go ahead and answer him for me? That'd be wonderful. She could have done that. You know what else she doesn't do? She doesn't say, hey, uh, Adam, husband of mine, can you get off your phone for a second? The devil's here. And he's got a question about you. And remember God gave you a commandment? Remember he gave that to you? I can't quite remember what he said exactly. Can you help me? Maybe we could talk to God about it together. She could have done that, but she doesn't. Instead, what she does is she, she chooses to engage in this moment. Listen, I think this reveals something about how the serpent works and how he continues to work, and that's this. Listen, the serpent, the enemy, he wants us to talk about God. He doesn't want us to talk to him. He wants us to talk about God. He wants us to talk not to God and not to others. In other words, listen, here's how the enemy works. And he's done this from the very beginning. And I'm telling you, he keeps doing it today. I see it time and time again. He wants you alone. He wants you to define and to determine who God is on your own. Without others and without talking to God. Talk about him. I'll tell you what's so interesting is look what happens. The Bible says that she said, yeah, we can eat from the fruit and the trees of the garden. But God did say that we must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and we must not touch it or we will die. Now, commentators are gonna point out that this part right here, you must not touch it, is in addition to what God said. God never said that. If you look at Genesis chapter two, God never said that. She's adding this. And the reason commentators think that's important is because this is what happens when we try to defend and determine God on our own terms, is that we usually end up getting it wrong somewhere. We usually end up putting things in that he never said, making him be things that he's not intended to be. And so she answers in this way, she misquotes. And now watch what happens next. Here it comes. Here is the blatant lie that comes from the serpent. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. 
In other words, translation, God is lying to you. He's lying. And then I want you to notice this cunning serpent adds this ingenious rationale. Look what he says. You're not going to die because God knows. In other words, he doesn't say there's something wrong with the fruit. He says there's something wrong with God. God, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be you're going to be like him. You're going to be like him, knowing good and knowing evil. I think it's probably pretty clear. The implications are clear here when you read this lie, right? What is the lie? Here is the lie. He's saying God is holding you back. God is holding you back. He doesn't actually care about you. He actually is trying to restrict you and restrain you. He is trying to limit you. God doesn't want you to rise to your full potential. And so because of that, God is pulling you back. In other words, what Satan is trying to get into the heart of humanity from the very beginning is this. If you obey God, you're gonna miss out. And if you obey God, you're never gonna be fully happy. You know, one of the ways that we say it here at Grace Church, and we've said it this way before, and I'll say it time and time again, because I think it's so important that we understand how our enemy works. But if you wanna know what the great lie is from the very beginning, here's the great lie. Here's the great lie. The great lie is this, that if you wanna find freedom and joy in this life, you have to run, run from the author of life. This is from the very beginning, the great lie. You wanna, you wanna find joy and you wanna find freedom in this life? Then run, run from God, run from God. Because he's holding you back and he's restraining you and his way is restrictive and so you must run from the creator. And let me tell you that this lie right here, this great lie, is the heart behind all of our big problems. This is the heart behind our biggest problem as humanity. This is what went wrong. And this is the heart that lies behind every sinful decision we ever make. The Bible's gonna say that this is the heart behind sin. Now, the Bible's gonna go on in pages to come, and it's gonna define sin in several different ways. But can I just tell you that behind every definition of sin is this. This is the root of it. Let me just help you with this. Sin, you've probably heard that term used a lot. It's kind of a churchy word. The word sin, I just wanna help clarify. Biblically, sin is not just bad behavior. Okay, that's not what biblical sin is. Sin is not just um, guilty pleasures. That's not what sin is. Sin at its very heart and its very root is this. It is rebellion against God. That's what it is. Is It is a deliberate turning away from God's word, from God's will, and God's way. If you wanna find joy and you wanna find meaning and purpose in this life and you wanna find satisfaction, you need to run from the author of life. And this right here is what's behind every painful, hurtful, sinful decision you or I have ever made and those around us. And it is, the lie, it is the lie that has deceived the entire human race from the very beginning to now. Let me just ask you a question. Is this right here not the sexual ethic of our day to day? Is this not the sexual ethic? You wanted to find, you wanna find liberation and freedom sexually? Don't go to God, run from God. God's way is archaic and is restricting and is restraining you. Is this not the mantra that we hear in education and in science and in our politics today? Is this not the mantra? Get rid of God. Get rid of him. We don't need him anymore. He is holding us back. If we want to progress and move forward anymore, we need to abandon him altogether. This is the source of the great lie, and it's the lie that has deceived the whole world. I'll tell you, it's powerful, and it works. And it works on every single one of us and it worked on the first humans as well. Because look what happens. The Bible says when the woman, so after she hears this lie, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and, uh, for food and pleasing for the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Now I think this is really important what happens here. Uh, Pastor Seth and I were talking this past week 
he actually pointed something out to me that I never noticed in this text before, but I thought was really, really insightful. I want you to notice what the Bible says about the woman after she hears this lie from the serpent. The Bible says that she sees now and she takes. She saw and she took. Now, the reason that's so significant is because this is in direct contradiction to the type of relationship that God has originally created humankind for. We humans were created to hear God and to listen to him. We were created to hear and trust, to hear and follow. But now you see that she sees, in other words, she evaluates for herself and she takes, she sees and she takes. You know, it's so fascinating. I don't know if you ever noticed this or not, but in our culture, in our society, and actually societies all throughout history, that we tend to prize the eyes in terms of knowledge and understanding. Did you ever realize that before? So whenever we talk about knowing and understanding things, we always talk about it in terms of our eyes. And so we'll say things like this. Oh, oh okay, I, I, I see. Oh, I see, what, I see now. Okay, I didn't understand, but I see. Or we'll say things like this. Well, seeing is, tell me, believing. I'll believe it when I see it. We're always prizing the eyes as it relates to wisdom and knowledge. And what's so fascinating is what we're saying is that if it doesn't make sense to me, if I can't evaluate it and judge it for myself, then it must not be real and it must not be true. And what's so fascinating here is now, notice she sees, she sees, and look at this, she sees and determines that it's good, that it's good. Now that's really significant. Many of you know that in Genesis 1 and 2, the term good shows up quite a bit. And in Genesis 1 and 2, God is the one who's determining what's good for humankind. God is the one who's determining what's good in creation. Now, for the first time in all of human history, you see humanity determining what's good apart from God. In other words, what the woman is saying is, no, 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 I'm the one who determines what's good. I know what God said. I know what God said, but I am the one who determines what's good and what's not good for me. I will define that on my own terms. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that logic sound familiar to anybody else in this room? You do what's good for you, I'll do what's good for me. Each of us need to determine what's good in our own eyes. And where does that come from? The Bible's gonna say that flows from this. It flows from this logic that God cannot be trusted, that God's way is restraining, that we must determine what's good for ourselves. And so the Bible says she takes it and she eats it. Now, we usually give the woman a bad rap here, and a lot of times people will blame her for the original sin, but I don't want you to miss this next thing because it's so easy to overlook. Look what the Bible says. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. So a lot of people are like, where was the dude at? He was right there. And suspiciously, the Bible tells us nothing of what he was doing. What in the world was this guy doing? His wife is talking to a snake about God's word. What is he doing? What is he doing? I mean, I, Mike, I don't, maybe he's looking at the pigs. I don't know. Like, hmm, what would it be like if I cooked one of them up? I just get a feeling it's gonna be real good if I did. I, what's he think? I don't know what he's doing, but I'm just telling you, here you have the ultimate passive male. He's just sitting there doing nothing. So look what happens. The Bible says they take and they eat. And here's the consequences. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. So here's what happens. They eat the fruit, just like uh, the, they, the Bible says. And the Bible says that just like the serpent said, their eyes are opened. But unlike the serpent said, they're not like God's. Instead, what happens is the Bible says that they're full of self-consciousness and self-embarrassment. And all of a sudden, there's shame and their immediate response is to cover themselves up. Not only do they hide from each other, but the Bible says they also, as stupid as this might seem, they try to hide from God. Verse eight, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what do you see happen? It's actually one of the saddest scenes in all of the Bible. The Bible ended in Genesis chapter two. It said the man and his wife were naked and they, have, they felt no shame. They were fully transparent, fully exposed in front of each other. There was absolutely no shame and they were comfortable with who God created them to be. They were comfortable with each other, vulnerable with each other, vulnerable with God. It was perfect peace. And now all of a sudden, what do you see? Hiding, hiding. 
I can tell you to this day, we hide. We feel the need to mask ourselves and cover ourselves from each other and to mask ourselves and cover ourselves from God. Sin makes us hiders. And we continue to hide to this. This is where, this is where self-consciousness comes from. This is where embarrassment of myself comes from. This is where insecurity flows from. This is where self-image is now such a big deal. This is why we, we are never intrinsically satisfied with who we were created to be, but we're always chasing after some version of who we think we need to be. That's where this comes from. It comes right from here. Let me ask you a question. Is there anything you can think of in your life? Is there anything you can think of in your life that you would never dare tell another person about? Is there anything in your life that you can think about that's so shameful, that's so dark, that's so painful, that you would never, ever dare tell another person? Just think about it for a minute. Just think about that for a second. Is there anything like that? That night, that one night, oh God. That one decision, that one appointment, that thought, that thing, God, that thing, if anyone found out. Let me ask you a question. If you have something like that and you've never told anyone and you would never dare tell, why? Why do we hide? Why do we feel like we gotta hide from each other? And the Bible's gonna say it comes from here. There's deep shame. There's deep shame that comes with sin. And we hide from each other. And not only do we hide from each other, but look at this. We try to hide from God. That in our sin, our natural response is not to run to God's people and it's not to run to God. It's to run away from him. We try to hide from him. And to this day, we continue to do that. We feel deep fear and deep shame towards God. I thought it was really interesting. Um, David Benner is a spiritual director and a spiritual coach. And he actually did a, a survey. He surveyed a bunch of people and he asked them this question. He said, what do you think is the number one word that comes to God's mind when he thinks of you? What is the number one word that you think comes to God's mind when he thinks of you? And do you know what the number one word was by a landslide? It's this word right here, disappointed. God must be so disappointed in me. Can I just tell you, for some of you, that resonates on a deep level because deep inside of you, even though you hear God loves you, even though you hear he wants to forgive you, deep down inside, this is what you believe. He's so disappointed in you. He's disappointed in you. And the truth is that because we all feel this somewhere deep in our heart, our natural response is to run from God and to hide from him, not to run to him. And yet I want you to notice something. I want you to notice God's response. Was God disappointed? I want you to notice God's response. The Lord God called to the man. So here's what's crazy. These, this is important because these are the first words said to sinful man. Okay, after mankind falls, these are the first words God speaks. And what are the first words God says to man after the mankind after they sin? Here it is. He called out and he said, where are you? Where are you? And I'm telling you, this is so deeply significant because what do we see? We see that God, God, in, the, in, in response to sin, God comes to the place of sin and then he calls out to the sinner. And so right from the beginning of the story, what do we see? We see that God is coming for sinners, that God seeks after, and I'm just telling you this right now, some of you need to hear this right now, God is still seeking sinners and he's saying, where are you? Where are you? You see the heart of God here. Where are you? So Adam responds and he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So in other words, he says, I was naked and afraid. Like the Discovery Channel show. I'm pretty sure they named it after this verse. I, I'm just guessing. He's like, I was naked and afraid. And so look at God. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, can I ask you something that I've been thinking about all week? I just think this is so interesting. Why do you think God asked this? Why do you think? I mean, surely he knew, right? He's the omniscient God. He's the creator of all things. He knew what happened. Why is he asking? Can I tell you what I'm convinced of? I'm totally convinced. I think the reason God asked this question is not because he's seeking information. 
The reason I think God asked this question is because he is inviting confession. He's inviting confession. Listen, God wants to heal and he wants to forgive. And he gives this opportunity. This is not a brittle, angry, disappointed God. This is a compassionate, gracious God who wants to meet us in our sin and who's eager for us to confess so that he can forgive. Now, some people ask the question, they say, man, what would it have been like if Adam and Eve never sinned? I think that's a good question, but here's a more interesting one to me. What would it have been like if Adam and Eve didn't hide? What if when, uh, when the Lord God came, they ran out to him? They said, God, wow, we messed up. Whew, you told us not to do that, and we did it, and it's our fault. I wonder if this story would have been any different. But the Bible tells us that's not humankind's first response. Our first response is to shift blame, because look what happens. So the man said, now look at his response, the woman. He's like, what happened? He's like, the woman. It's you gave me. That's you guys' fault. The woman you gave, she's the one who gave me the tree. Now, I think this is kind of comical, and it's actually more tragic than it is funny. But if you look at what he says in the original Hebrew language, here's the way it's worded. Adam says, the woman you gave, gave me tree. That's what he says. The woman you gave, gave me fruit, gave me from the tree. In other words, he's like, look, I was just standing here. People just keep giving me stuff. All right, I'm sitting here. You give me a woman. She's giving me this tree. I don't know. You guys, it's your fault. Basically, is what he's saying. He's totally blamed. And so now this wife, this wife, that just a chapter earlier in Genesis chapter two, the Bible says that Adam, when he meets her, he breaks into spontaneous song and he worships God. And he says, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He names her woman in Genesis two. You know what woman means? Woman means out of the man. In other words, it means mine. That's what Adam says. When he meets the woman, that's what he does. He's naming the animals. He's like, rhino, hippo, giraffe, mine, when he sees the woman. That one's for me. And he's so excited. And now you see what happens. He's like, you gave her to me. Your problem. He just takes his wife, throws her right under the bus. And then look what happens. So she, he turns to her. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And notice what the woman says. Serpent. And you see the blame shifting. And listen, this is where, this is where the it's never really my fault mentality comes from. That's where it comes from. This is where the my sinful actions are really because someone else did something to me. That's where all this, all this blame shifting, this lack of humility, this self-preservation that finds its way into every conflict that we face. That's where that comes from. This is why it's, uh, yeah, I said those things. I, should, I shouldn't have said those things. But if they, wouldn't, if they wouldn't have, it's never quite entirely my fault. This is where the, I know I shouldn't have taken off his helmet and hit it with him, hit it with him. Too soon? Too soon for that? <laughs> this is where my par- it's my parents' fault. It's my upbringing's fault. I'm always the victim. Where's that? And so I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, I never blame shift. My husband does that. I never do that. And <laughs> you're proving my points. You're proving my points. It comes from here. So I want you to notice what happens next. So what's going to happen next is very interesting. God is going to look at creation, and he is going to pronounce curses. He's going to pronounce a curse on the serpent and a curse on the land. And he's going to pronounce consequences on man and consequences on the woman. But I want you to notice specifically what he says to the serpent because this is so important. He turns to the serpent and he said, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You're gonna crawl on your belly and you're gonna eat dust all of the days of your life. Now there's a lot of of different, you know, conjecturing around what exactly that means. But what I want you to notice in particular is what's said in verse 15. Because what's said in Genesis chapter three, verse 15 is actually held by Jews and Christians to be one of the most important verses in all of the Old Testament. It actually is considered the first prophecy that God has ever made. And Jews and Christians alike would look at it and say that it's the first time in all of the Bible that there is a promise that one day God is going to send a Messiah. And what is it? Here's what it says. God looks at the serpent 
and he pronounces a prophecy to the serpent. And here's what he says. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That sounds really puzzling, but I want you to notice something. God looks and he says something to the enemy. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. In other words, there's gonna be conflict and there's gonna be an offspring that's gonna come from this woman and there's going to be conflict between you and this offspring. And what's so fascinating is the Bible tells us it uses the singular masculine pronoun and it says that this offspring is gonna be a he. He is going to come and he, he is gonna crush your head even though you strike his heel. In other words, what he's saying is you are going to inflict what you think is a mortal blow on him. But in so doing, it's actually gonna be to your own demise because he is going to crush your head. Now, I can only imagine that when the first readers would have heard this, that they probably would have puzzled over who is this snake stomper going to be? But let me just tell you that the rest of our Bible is the unfolding of this promise that God made right here in Genesis 3.15. Let me ask you a question. Did you ever notice how in the Bible, the Bible seems to be very concerned with genealogies? Did you ever notice that? It's always saying this person was the son of this person was the son of this person. Why is it doing that? because it's concerned about the offspring. It's trying to tell us that there's going to be one that's going to come. And this one is going to be the son of Adam and Eve. He is going to be a descendant of Abraham. He's going to be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob. He's gonna be a descendant of King David. And the Bible's gonna tell us that when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, he was born of the woman and he was not born of the man. He was born of the virgin. And the Bible is going to tell us that when Jesus Christ was born, it's going to say something very interesting about his birth in the book of 1 John. And here's what it's going to say. It's going to say the reason the Son of God came, the reason he appeared, was to destroy the devil's work. In other words, what the Bible is going to say is that the top of Jesus' to-do list in his time here on earth was to crush the works of the devil. And the Bible is going to tell us in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is going to grow to be a man. He is going to be tempted in the same way that Adam and Eve were tempted. The same serpent is going to come to him. And the same serpent, up to his same old tricks, is going to sow seeds of suspicion to what God said. But unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus Christ is going to look at the serpent and he is going to rebuttal and come back and say, it is written. In other words, he's going to say, God said it and I believe him, and I'm trusting him. And where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus Christ succeeded. And then later on in the story, you're gonna see there's gonna be another struggle in another garden. See, Adam and Eve, they struggled in the garden with a commandment about a tree. And Jesus Christ in the garden of Gethsemane struggled in the garden with a commandment about a tree, about the cross. You see, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were in a perfect garden they were in a perfect garden and God essentially said to them, obey me about a tree and you'll live. And they didn't. And Jesus Christ was in a dark garden. And God said to his son, obey me about a tree and you'll die on it. And he did. And he did for our sake. And on the tree, a fatal wound was inflicted on the son of God. But little did anyone know that it would crush the head of the enemy. Love the way Tim Keller puts it. Tim Keller is an author and a pastor in New York City. He said this, what's the tree sin? What's the sin of the tree? It's us putting ourselves where only God deserves to be, putting ourselves in the place of God. The tree's salvation is God putting himself where we deserve to be on the cross. And it's a great exchange where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus Christ has succeeded. But again, I'm getting way ahead of myself because that's not till much later in the story. I ask the band to make their way up here and um, as they do, listen, Genesis 3 is our story. It's not just their story. I mean, does this not, does this not absolutely expose what's in your heart? I believe that when we read Genesis chapter three, we're not just reading Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three is reading us. And it reveals what's in our heart. It reveals what's in my heart. This great lie, the suspicion around God's word. Have you ever come to a place where you can admit and you've recognized that you're a sinner? 
that we're all sinners. And I don't mean that you've made mistakes. I mean, we've all rebelled against God. We've all turned our back against him in one way or another. Have you come to the place where you realize he's coming after you? Do you sense that? Just like God came after Adam and Eve, he's coming after you, he's seeking you. Can I just encourage you, if you're a person who this morning is maybe running from God, or maybe you're far from God, can I just implore you, don't run from him. He loves you. He's not disappointed in you, he's eager. He's inviting confession and he wants to forgive you. He wants to meet you in that place. Don't run from him, run to him, run to him. And you can do that even now. And to worship and sing, I wanna give you guys some space. Talk to God, talk to God about, about anything in um, response to this conversation, let's pray. Well, God, I just wanna say thank you that you have been so kind to let us know the backstory. Genesis 3 is not just a story about the first humans, it is our story. Father, I see myself right there in it. I, I am guilty of buying into the same lie. And Jesus, I do want to confess to you that there are many times that we do believe the lie. I do believe the lie that if I want to find joy and freedom in this life, I need to run from you. The joy and freedom is determined outside of you. But it's a lie. It's a lie. And so God, I pray that, uh, that you would, out of the people in this room who follow you, would you create a new humanity? Would you create a new kind of person that we would be people who hear you and who listen to you, who hear you and we trust you, even if we don't see it and don't understand it, that we would learn to trust you above ourselves. Would you help us to be people like that? And so, God, I pray that we'd be blessed for having heard the things that we heard. I pray that it would not just change the way we think, but I pray it would change the way we live. I pray that Genesis chapter 3 would paint the way we view ourselves, the way we view other people, and the way that we view you, that would help us to know how to interact in a way that's healthy with you and with others and with ourselves. We just want to ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.